This week we'll be rebroadcasting an old episode of The Rounds Table because I will be writing my internal medicine board exams in the hopes that one day I can be a real doctor instead of just pretending to be one on the podcast. So enjoy one of our favorite episodes and we'll be back to you with brand new content next week. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a senior resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing well, Amol. How are you doing? I'm great. So welcome back, everyone. It's been a bit of a hiatus away from the rounds table. I managed to live through the withdrawal. And so we're really excited to be back for, I guess, why don't we call this our fall season? So Nathan is going to be talking today about perioperative atrial fibrillation and the risk of stroke. We've had a bit of a series of atrial fibrillation and stroke uh, articles that we brought forward, but this one is really important and particularly in the perioperative period. And then I'm going to be talking today about Tylenol, well, technically paracetamol because it was a UK-based study, for lower back pain. Well, Nathan, you're our leadoff hitter for this new season, so step up to the plate. I'm just looking for a single like any good uh, leadoff hitter. So uh, happy to be talking about this interesting paper that uh, came out in JAMA over the summer. It showed that perioperative atrial fibrillation is actually a risk factor for ischemic stroke in the, in the long term. So as you probably know, postoperative atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia that we see in the perioperative period. And depending on the population that you look at and the procedure involved, the rates can be pretty high between 1 and up to 40%. That would be probably in the uh, cardiac surgery population. So there's a variety of potential etiologies that can lead to uh, perioperative atrial fibrillation, and it's usually considered to be a self-limited entity. And that was uh, sort of a comment made by the authors of, of this paper. And they sought out to look at whether this self-limited entity is actually associated with uh, ischemic strokes, and they did this using a, a large set of administrative data from California. So they had about 1.7 million patients that they followed over a three-year period, and they determined if someone developed the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation during their uh, inpatient uh, hospital stay following an operation, whether or not they would have higher rates of ischemic stroke. So in looking at this huge number of patients, they found a 1.4 incidence of perioperative AFib. So among those undergoing non-cardiac surgery, the rates of ischemic stroke were about 1.5% in the perioperative AFib group and about 0.3% in the non-AFib group. So that's about a four times increase. They did a lot of adjustments uh, trying to stratify based on cardiovascular risk factors. And they basically showed that perioperative atrial fibrillation resulted in a hazard ratio of two compared to those without atrial fibrillation in the non-cardiac surgery group. And when they limited their analysis to only cardioembolic strokes, that increased to about five. So these authors conclude that this entity of perioperative AFib is actually a risk factor for uh, ischemic stroke. And I think the take-home message of this is that it's probably something we need to uh, pay a little more attention to as we're uh, discharging patients and ensuring that they have appropriate follow-up going forward to reduce risks of uh, cerebrovascular events. So what do you think, Amol? 
I think it's kind of good that you and I are speaking about this because we're seeing the same patient from different sides of the same coin. You as the surgeon who might initially be detecting the atrial fibrillation and then me as the medicine consultant who is often asked to see these patients as a result. Uh, so I think we have a slightly different perspective, which is good. It's almost like we planned it that way. I, it's really just fate, I think. But so That was a double, I think, that line. <laughs> So this study, I think, is really interesting because it has all the strengths and weaknesses of a classic administrative data study, which is that they're able to look at a massive number of patients, 1.7 million patients, follow them longitudinally over three years, and yet they're fairly limited in the clinical data that they have. Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, and I think the, the biggest thing that they don't have is any outpatient data on these patients. So they were able to determine based on some uh, comorbidity indices from the time of the initial surgical admission, whether or not the patients had pre-existing atrial fibrillation. They had some uh, mechanism of trying to identify those that went on to have persistent atrial fibrillation using uh, some administrative data. But there's definitely a paucity of information on kind of ambulatory clinic visits, primary care providers or specialists that these people might have been referred to. Yeah, so the case, I totally agree. So the case definition here of like what it, perioperative AFib looks like in this study as opposed to real perioperative atrial fibrillation. In this study, it's patients who did not have documented atrial fibrillation in their chart before the admission for their surgery, who had atrial fibrillation on the admission of the surgery, and then in the year afterwards, did not have atrial fibrillation if they had contact with other healthcare providers. So if they had another hospitalization, yeah, effectively. That fed into this administrative data. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a huge number of patients and they have, I think, uh, access to some very uh, in-depth and granular uh, sets of information, but but it's a limitation. And, and as we were discussing earlier, another limitation is the lack of uh, prescription drug registry that they were able to link things to, to know what medications these people were being um, discharged on. Yeah, exactly. So specifically, we don't know which of these patients ended up on anticoagulation, which would be, you know, the primary method of managing atrial fibrillation to reduce the risk of stroke, right? So without knowing how many of these patients ended up on anticoagulation, it makes it difficult to interpret exactly uh, what these results show. But I think the way you presented it is exactly right in the sense that these results tell us that perioperative atrial fibrillation, defined as they have been able to define it, carries a long-term risk of stroke and probably is something that we should not dismiss so lightly. So I don't know what your experience is, but certainly I have heard in the hospital very frequently, oh, it's just perioperative atrial fibrillation, or the other setting in which we see this is in the context of sepsis, and oh, it's just sepsis-induced atrial fibrillation, and once we get over the perioperative period, or once we treat the sepsis, there everything will go back to normal, we don't really have to worry about it. Yeah, I, I think that would definitely be my experience. You know, I think there are definitely certain patients where this becomes a, a persistent issue for their hospitalization. But I think there's another very large group of patients that on their routine vitals, they're found to be tachycardic. You do an ECG, they're found to have you know, a heart rate of 110 and they're an AFib. And then you correct their magnesium or you restore their volume and the arrhythmia goes away. And then, you know, the rest of their hospitalization is unremarkable. And 
it's a bit of an afterthought. Or certainly if they develop a, something like an anastomotic leak where they uh, are unstable and at the time that they're unstable, they have an arrhythmia and they're treated and the arrhythmia goes away. I mean, I think people are sort of uh, a bit flippant and maybe, you know, in this to me, this paper says maybe, you know, a bit too flippant about just kind of washing their hands of, of that issue and, and not really making it a, a major part of the post-admission uh, documentation and a major part of, of the follow-up plan. So that, that was kind of my read of this from, from my perspective as someone who does see this complication, you know, often enough. Sometimes we're a bit dismissive of it. Yeah, I agree. So Nathan, when you see that, you know, when you get called, because you're the person who's going to be called first, mm -hmm. that, you know, this patient is tachycardic or they have an irregular heart rate, and now we've found that they have atrial fibrillation. What is the clinical question that you have to answer, that you have to decide? What's your decision point there? So, you know, when I see a patient with uh, AFib postoperatively, and, you know, certainly what I try to teach the medical students is, you know, we obviously have to rate control and ensure that they're not becoming unstable because of the arrhythmia, but you want to rule out whatever the etiology of the arrhythmia might be. So, you know, the clinical decision that I have most often is, you know, does this patient have a, a post-operative complication that I need to, that, that this is just a marker for? Do they have a PE? Do they, are they having an MI? Do they have an anastomotic leak? And my priority is mostly ruling out those things. You know, it's sort of my, uh, I think, general approach that if I can identify that issue, and correct it or address it, whether it's electrolyte abnormalities or myocardial infarction, then that's my sort of responsibility in, in sort of addressing the arrhythmia. And only when it becomes a persistent issue do we generally, uh, you know, deal with sort of involving internal medicine or cardiology and determining whether the patient needs to be uh, anti anticoagulated going forward. Yeah. So would you say this study changes your practice or informs your practice? I think it does. And, and I, th I think it should. And I think, you know, even something, you know, you, you may not like this, but uh, maybe a little more frequent uh, consultation uh, from our colleagues in internal medicine, just to sort of maybe articulate a, a better follow-up plan. Does this patient need to be referred for outpatient uh, halter monitor? What gives you the impression that I wouldn't like this? Perhaps as a resident on a salary-based system, but certainly in a fee-for-service model. Well, you're not part of that model yet. It's a matter of time, and that, <laughs> that window is getting ever closer. That's so nice for you. Uh, you're at uh, The light is brighter from uh, where you're sitting than it is for me. <laughs> so I totally agree with you that, that from that point of view, this is an important study that, that highlights an important point. Now, I would argue that I have a slightly different question to answer, which is that when you do decide to call me or one of my internal medicine colleagues, we have to decide, apart from what you've already uh, talked about as due diligence of ruling out underlying causes, we have to decide how do we manage this atrial fibrillation going forward? And does it merit anticoagulation effectively? Mm -hmm. And I think that this study doesn't give me an answer to that question yet because it wasn't really designed to, right? It can't tell me about whether these patients were on drugs, like anticoagulants. It can't tell me important things. So there are a few other important limitations. You mentioned the lack of outpatient data, but the other data that's, lim that's limited here is the duration of the atrial fibrillation. So all we have is yes or no, did the patient have atrial fibrillation? But, you know, does that mean that they had atrial fibrillation for seven days or seven minutes? And how does that affect, you know, my clinical decision making? Right. And, and linking that uh, duration to the subsequent uh, cardioembolic risk or maybe uh, interestingly linking, you know, if it could have been attributed to a specific underlying etiology, electrolyte abnormality, hypovolemia, 
sepsis, you know, do those people ultimately have different risk factors for cardioembolic stroke? Exactly. So I think that there's a lot of clinical questions that are raised by this study. And as all good research does, it it opens up many new avenues for exploration. And as an internist, I'm keen to see what comes from this, because certainly it is one of the most common problems we see in uh, perioperative medicine. And it is an important question as to whether we should just be dismissing these things or whether this is a sign that this patient likely is going to develop paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, which we know carries a similar risk of long-term stroke as chronic atrial fibrillation. So why don't you wrap up, Nathan, tell us the takeaway points from this article. So like we've discussed and with the limitations of uh, the administrative data that was used, this study does show that perioperative atrial fibrillation is a risk factor for ischemic stroke in the relatively short-term but I think clinically important follow-up period of, of three years. And I think for, you know, for me, it, it behooves us to be a little more uh, mindful of this issue potentially being not just a, a bump in the road of their hospital stay, but maybe a, a marker for, or for issues down the line. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. So I'm excited to talk today about paracetamol for acute lower back pain. It was published in The Lancet. Well, I'm excited to hear about you talking talk about it too because you're batting you're batting cleanup right now (laughs) the sports metaphors in this episode speak to the fact that i think neither you or i have picked up a baseball bat in like at least 10 years incorrect i'm on a softball team uh sorry to judge nathan when you're swinging your bat have you ever swung so hard that you've developed lower back pain as i get older unfortunately uh these types of aches and pains are creeping up on us. Yeah, they are, unfortunately. And so lower back pain is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And paracetamol is universally recommended, as in in every single major guideline around the world, it's recommended as the first-line analgesic for acute lower back pain. And yet there's no evidence to support its use. So this study is called the PACE study, and it was a placebo-controlled, randomized control trial run out of Sydney, Australia, where 235 primary care practices enrolled patients with acute lower back pain that was at least moderately intense. And so acute meant less than six weeks. They randomized these patients to three groups. One was placebo. The second was regular dosed paracetamol. So the patient was supposed to take it every four to six hours. And then as needed paracetamol, so the paracetamol would be taken only as needed. So the one universal element in all these patients was that they received counseling about remaining active even while they had the lower back pain and counseling about the fact that acute lower back pain, so to be importantly differentiated from chronic lower back pain, has a favorable prognosis and is usually self-limited. So the patients were told to take their medication until they recovered or for four weeks, whichever one came first, and the primary outcome was time to recovery from pain. So by 12 weeks, 85% in all of the groups achieved a sustained recovery with no difference between the groups, and the median days to recovery was about 17 days in all of the groups, again with no difference. So the study effectively showed that Tylenol is not effective or is not more effective than placebo at treating acute lower back pain. So what do you think? So I know it may surprise you, but I'm not 
completely up to date on all the guidelines for acute uh, low back pain. And, you know, your initial comment saying that all of those guidelines recommend Tylenol or acetaminophen as uh, initial therapy did surprise me a little bit because when we think about acute pain issues, whether it be after injury or after surgery, that's a patient population where narcotics are often considered an appropriate first-line therapy, albeit as part of a, a multimodal strategy. I'm a bit surprised that uh, we would think that maybe after an acute injury, Tylenol would be uh, sufficient or better than placebo. Yeah, I mean, I think that this has to do, there, there are a few things. I think that this largely comes from the World Health Organization's pain ladder, which suggests, as you said, that pain management be multimodal and typically would recommend layering opioid analgesic on top of a non-opioid analgesic like paracetamol or one of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen or something like that. But I mean, 17 days to me sounds, I mean, depending on your perspective, it is, that's a, that's a long time to be on pain medication, let's say after abdominal surgery. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, so to bring that number down to a week or 10 days by having, uh, you know, other elements of that cake of pain medication. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I just don't know if this would be considered, you know, if you were still having pain after three days or five days or seven days, would you just be continuing with the Tylenol? So, I mean, I just don't know how well that reflects uh, how I would treat someone with uh, following an acute injury. So I'm not sure, Nathan, if, you know, uh, people would be as aggressive as you might be in managing perioperative pain in managing back pain. This study specifically used rescue analgesic medication with naproxen uh, and allowed patients, if they needed it, to take naproxen as rescue therapy. And they also took drug histories to find if whether patients were using other medications such as opioids uh, during the study. And the rates of opioid use were very low, less than 5% in all the groups and, and no differences that might bias the results. And the use of the rescue naproxen was by very few patients, less than 1% of the patients. So I guess it sounds like these patients, uh, you know, were relatively uh, functional despite, uh, you know, continuing the, the pain medication for 17 days. On, exactly. On these were patients in ambulatory practice who had moderate pain to severe pain, uh, but weren't necessarily debilitated by that pain. And recovered in 17 days, sort of, in, which I agree with you, could be a very long time if you're suffering through that whole time. At the same time, it was a self-limited episode. Okay, well, and my next question had to do with the uh, counseling that they received. Can you tell us a bit about that and I guess how uh, intense that was, which I, I think would maybe speak to the generalizability of this study if, uh, if the counseling seems to be uh, an important component of this treatment? Yeah. Uh, what, the, what did it involve? So they didn't talk about it too much other than they said that in their initial assessment visit with the primary care provider, every patient received counseling about the fact that acute lower back pain is a self-limited condition and has a favorable prognosis and that they should stay active through the pain as much as possible. And so you know, that's best practice at the moment in terms of managing lower back pain. And I agree with you that that is a central part of uh, care for these patients and is something that is generalizable in the sense that it should be what we're applying across practice. So this is physician administered, so to speak, counseling basically within the context of the primary care visit, not 
uh, really anything kind of unusual or above and beyond that. Exactly. There wasn't a supplementary visit or anything like that. Okay. So, you know, I think what we really have to take away from this uh, is that we don't really have great pharmacologic options for acute low back pain, but the good news is, by and large, people get better on their own. Well, that is good news indeed. And I'll just make the one takeaway point, which is that a conversation I had with my wife about this, actually, where I told her about the evidence and she said, that's all fine and well, but unfortunately, I can't prescribe my patient's placebo. And if someone comes to the office and has a lot of pain and wants a medication for it, as far as pain medications go, Tylenol is quite safe. You know, the incidence of acute liver failure in Tylenol uh, patients is less than 1%. And, you know, overall, it's safe and well tolerated. And so if that helps my patient achieve a placebo effect, that's the best I can do as their physician. So yes, I think our listeners would be interested to know that your wife is in fact a physician as well, and not just some interested <laughs> member of the public who's uh, seeing patients with back pain in, on in her office. Having said that, she has some pretty dubious perspectives on prescribing placebos, clearly. So although that's enough about that, because she's not here to defend herself, and <laughs> I will have no recourse to defending myself when she does listen to this. Although the good news is that she never listens to the <laughs> All right. So in summary, Tylenol is not more effective than placebo for acute lower back pain, which should question the universal recommendations and guidelines. And the staple of management for acute lower back pain should remain counseling and reassurance about the favorable prognosis. And use of medications should come from informed, you know, patient-centered decisions. I will remember that the next time I... uh swing a little too hard the next baseball game. Perfect. So let's move on to our good stuff segment, Nathan. Uh, talk to me about what's good in your world of medicine this week. So I came across a, a provocative uh, perspective piece in uh, one of the surgical journals, the Annals of Surgery. It's titled, Are We Paying Our House Staff Fairly? And basically uh, challenges the current compensation schemes that are used for paying residents in, in North America, where basically everyone, regardless of your specialty, is paid the same salary based on postgraduate year. And it sort of uh, tries to analyze based on hours worked and suggests that general surgery residents, a population that I'm very interested in, are paid about 14 bucks an hour compared to dermatology residents who are paid 25 bucks an hour. And uh, suggest some strategies that maybe could result in a, in a fairer compensation uh, scheme for uh, postgraduate trainees in, in North America. A fascinating perspective, although I wonder how if we continue to use time-based allocation of resources, people would respond when we talk about post-residency or actually licensed physicians, given what we know about how procedural specialties are heavily compensated compared to cognitive specialties with well, respect of course to I would challenge. Time. I would, of course, I would challenge the lack of cognitive uh, actions among those of us <laughs> performing procedural specialties, but you might be surprised to, to hear that the authors anticipated that concern and basically said that work is work and the prospect of future earnings shouldn't necessarily result in uh, unfair pay now. And that was sort of uh, their ethical slant on, on that uh, 
Of course, prospect of future earnings is absolutely what guides all sorts of people, including the guy who's running drugs on the street, to uh, you know the residents or law students articling in law firms. Well, I invite you to read the uh, the piece and and see what you think after getting uh, the more in depth perspective of these authors. <laughs> Thanks for bringing up uh, such a controversial point of view. So my good stuff recommendation is actually something that has absolutely floored me. And this is my wife's second shout out in this episode, but this was something she brought to my attention. So hat tip to Rima on this one. So Nathan, you may know that approximately 70 tribes in the Amazon jungle are isolated and have never had contact with modern civilization. And this is a decision that's been made by the Brazilian government to protect the uh, natural habitat of uh, these local indigenous peoples. And earlier this summer, one of those tribes actually broke away from its, you know, typical boundaries, and as a result, encountered some Brazilian government officials that were in the area in the Amazon. And there is this absolutely gripping eight-minute YouTube video of the first contact with this indigenous tribe. It's like being transported in time and seeing the first settlers in North America meeting indigenous people for the first time. It's unbelievable watching this interaction. And the most mind-blowing thing about this whole thing is that after about three weeks of close interaction, the indigenous people all contracted influenza. <laughs> I was waiting for the uh, medical connection. <laughs> yeah, even f- even though all the, you know, modern day individuals and Brazilian people had no symptoms, all of the indigenous peoples contracted influenza and there was a big scare that they would return to their communities and just cause, you know, this pandemic to that would wipe out these indigenous peoples. And so it's it's sort of an active ongoing issue right now that the Brazilian government is watching very closely. How's that? So if you do nothing else this week, watch this eight-minute video. It will blow your mind. All right. Uh, thanks for a great chat as always, Nathan. Thank and, you, Amal. Uh, look forward to doing this soon. Can't wait.